place where we can take a deep breath and try to think about things in a different way. Where can yeah. you where can you bring a soothing, calming kind of discussion about where we want to go, and who leads you through that process? You need a a kind of leadership that gives you comfort, and we don't have that. I want to get into another area here, and uh, <laughs> that is what I'm calling normisms or <laughs> philosophy. You know, the CEO to average paid worker went from twenty to one. So like 400 to one in the past uh, 30 years is one sort of indication of that. And so, you know, you have um, many leading investors and many leading companies now saying sort of enough is enough. That's former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice and Christopher Markey, an expert on B Corps. Welcome to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Christopher Markey is a Samuel C. Johnson Professor of Management at Cornell University. He wrote a book called Better Business. The book tells the story of the rise of B Corps in the U.S. B Corps commits to putting social benefits, the rights of workers, community impact, and environmental stewardship on equal footing with financial shareholders. How is that working? Former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice will return for part two of my conversation with him. Part 1 aired last week. There are deep divisions in the city of Seattle, the state of Washington, and of course across the country. When Norm was elected mayor in 1989, busing to desegregate public schools was ripping the city apart. How did Mayor Rice navigate this contentious issue during the campaign, and how did he move the city to a place that produced a positive outcome? But first, I asked Norm what he thought about the major protests that gripped downtown Seattle this summer. Looking at a real specific issue that we dealt with over the summer, and that is the protests and all the things that happened in the downtown core, what were you thinking during that time? <laughs> Boy, you would ask that question. I never felt so much pain in my whole life than during this whole process and and feeling a little more impotent, you know. And, and I've been quiet because I don't like, I have not ever got on the air and criticize the mayor or the council or anything else. But I said it uh, earlier, and I'll say it again. No one was healing. Everybody was angry. But nobody was really trying to move in a more positive way. And we let it get away from us in a a million different ways. And I'm not going to tell you I'm sitting here, I know what you want to do. But, you know, uh, I'll give you some analogies. I'm going to get in trouble with this, but he won't say it anyway. The chop. Someone thought that was a good idea. But people died in the chop. <laughs> people were raped in the chop. The place wasn't a safe place. It wasn't a place where people felt secure. So what did you do, you know, in this whole process? And then once you had it, you developed a boundary that was very hard to maintain. And then in the middle of there, right a couple blocks away, is a precinct. And so it becomes the, the, the fort that you charge. You know, you could see the match, and you could see the flame, and you know what it was going to happen. I think the hardest thing for me, and I'm now regretting what I'm telling you now, because it's hard. I don't want to criticize the mayor or anybody else. It's some tough times. You know, people were shot by police. 
you know, and if you try to take them separately as they are, the cumulative effect of it was beyond what I think anybody ever thought. And what I mean by that, a man in the South jogging gets shot by three people for no good reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, another man with a knee on his neck saying, I can't breathe. He dies or in some ways a no good reason. So, you know, and no one kind of figures out a way to temper it. No one knows how to respond to it. Don't be surprised that you get this anger. And then what makes it even more difficult is people who have other agendas can take advantage of that anger and that despair. So what do you do? How do you come into that sphere and bring it down a notch and try to make something out of it? How do you bring a sense of community or regain a sense of community in where you want to go? Everybody has, in, in a leaderless society that we are right now, has an agenda how to do it, but they aren't doing anything to heal or bring people together. And that's the challenge. And I, I don't have an answer right now because the you can see it. I mean, I have friends in this whole pandemic world, as I call it, on every side of this issue. The anger, people who are angry because they can't see a way out. Everybody is trying to make, show that they understand everybody's feelings and pain, but they can't even come to a place where they say, where are we going? I once uh, performed in a, a satirical play back in my days when I had, and it was uh, called A Cross-Eyed Look at a Cock-Eyed World. And I really believe we're right there now. That's I, I know I wrote that down <laughs> when you said it the other day. I got it right there. Well, that How was... do you get there? But where you got to get is a place where you're willing to listen and say, where is it that we want to go? Right now, people who aren't for that are winning that debate because they don't have to offer an alternative. That's a very good point. This is me. I'm just going to – an observation from the current administration where – Which one? <laughs> the one right – well, which uh, which one? I'm, I'm going to talk about the city of Seattle. <laughs> okay. I, I want to go the other way. I'll get too angry. Okay. But what I saw is something when you look at something and say the leadership part of it is lacking and that's being kind. is like you have these certain incidents that occur and you go, how is this going to be handled? Well – when Carmen Bass, the police chief, <laughs> resigned after what the city council, which I don't even get into there, what they were trying to do in, in that circumstance, Black Lives Matter and all this, and then, okay, let's cut 40% of the police chief's salary. But the lack of leadership going, she's not going anywhere. I'm the mayor. I'm not accepting her resignation. I'm in charge. Boy, oh, boy, boy. That's, but this is me. That's almost a two-day discussion. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I think really it's – the dilemma that's all across the country, that our emotions are driving reasonable decisions. And it's easy to play to the emotions than it is to come up with solutions. And that's that's the problem. There's an old line, I said it earlier, some people would rather you hear their complaints than solve their problems. But right now, all we're doing is complaining. We're not coming up with solutions. And the solutions are are all about punitive. Cut the police, you know, change this, change that, without saying, what is it that we really want? Do we really want to do that? Yeah, I understand right. it. I mean, you yeah. know, uh, but, you know, it seems so simple. It's not that simple. Safe streets, safe passage, 
the kinds of things you need police for are important. If you're going to do these things, you really got to come up with some principles of, well, what is it that you want to keep? What do you want to protect? And how do you move forward? Don't cut the police by X amount and say somehow life is going to be better. I think they should have been cut by 48%. <laughs> and, and, and so, okay, and what are you going to do with the 48%? Well, the extra 2% goes to me or something. I don't know. But <laughs> no, I mean, no, no, no. I'm, what saying, I mean. you know I'm, I'm saying, saying but that's exactly. why you need a bigger plan. Right. If you're going to do this, you need to know where the investment's going to go. And will the investments improve the life that you say you want to help? Well, it needs another education summit type model. But if you do that, if you try to have a, a summit, you've got to have some principles. We were easier to put together a summit around education than we are about public safety and where we want to go. And I, I, I think if I do have one thing, trying to come to a percentage cut of what the police ought to be is, a, is, is the wrong way to go about it. What is it that you want to protect? What is it that you need to preserve? What is it that was going to make people feel safe? Now, if you use those as your principles to go for it, I think people look at it differently. But if you look at everybody as the, the police is the enemy, there are a whole lot of other services that you need and I can see where you might want to shift some things, but I don't think you ever want to say you're going to get rid of that well, many thing, police officers. It just comes to me now back to the education summit and what you did there is that you brought a lot of the departments into the fold too. Like, for example, Metro is in uh, part of the city, but it's a county uh, jurisdiction at the time and still is. But Metro providing vouchers for students to go uh, and get on buses, go to museums and things. And they, so they were participating. Yeah. And then what did you do with the departments of recreation? You had them open up the ball fields, parks and recreation. Well, so you got that buy-in too. Yeah, every department had to come up with a a program to help schools and children. And, and, and there's where their creativity went. I think right now, and you've said it better than I did, all we have is a way to cut police without a plan of where to invest. It doesn't make sense right now. You know what I mean? You've got to really say, we need to do this to do that. What's going to happen to downtown? What's going to happen to the retail and the sales tax and the other things when now that Amazon and everybody's gone? Where are you going to get the revenues to pay for the services that you want for the people that you care about? And what is that? It would be so uplifting if we heard something or had you know some sort of sense that, hey, we're going to get through this, and this is the city we're going to yeah. have once this gets through it. We're going to get past it. We don't seem to have that. So. No, no, I understand exactly what you're saying. I, that's why I say it's not easy right now. It's not the same. This is about a social issue going on in America that we don't know how to get our hands around, and we don't show or have leadership that gives you a call to action or brings you together to heal. And I know I use that term a lot. But it really isn't that we've got that one person will have a plan and everybody will follow. I keep using this theme all the time is we need a place where we can take a deep breath and try to think about things in a different way. Where can yeah. you, where can you bring a soothing, calming kind of discussion about where we want to go and who leads you through that process? You need a, a kind of leadership that gives you comfort and we don't have that. I want to get into another area here, and uh, that is what I'm calling normisms or philosophy. <laughs> and there were certain things that just popped out at me that I think are worth talking about. And one is 
that you said it's better to be roughly right than precisely, than precisely wrong. wrong. Right. Where did you come up with that one? So often elected officials and those who are involved want to come up with a perfect solution. And there's no such thing as a perfect solution. The real thing is when you come up with the solution, you have to show how you put what you heard into the program that you're directing. And so that doesn't mean that I do everything that you say, but I understand what you say. And I think that's what is a hard thing for a lot of people to understand. You can get to where most people want to go if you hear them. And when you put your plan together, you use their words for the things that you've done. Remember when we were at Mount Baker and we were talking about playgrounds? You said X. I heard you, but the only way I could see how we could do it is to do that. Every time that you acknowledge that you heard somebody and you can show where you build it into your plan or not do what they said, but build in that thought, you build trust. And you spend the time to go back to tell them what you did. So you just don't have a hearing and then go to the drawing board and then say, here it is. You say, am I doing it right? So you help ask people to help it be built. And that's part of what the education summit was. So after a while, we started knowing what people wanted as the complementary element to education and the like. And then we could start to see what we could do. You also said uh, in the book, uh, Philosophy, you never have been an ideologue. Explain what you mean by that. The real thing is that as much as you want to say you have leadership and gravitas and leading and all, it really is about the people and you serve the people. And if you can show all along the way that they're engaged in what you're doing, that you're using what they said, you build trust. I don't know where it's been where somebody ever came down from the mountaintop and led everybody to the promised land. Even Moses had his problems <laughs> with the Dead Sea and the like. You know, so, right. so yeah. you know, don't ever think that you it's charismatic leadership is. It's a communication thing. You know, you came and you said that we should do X, and, but you came back and said, I can't do that. But you did say something. You came back. You showed another alternative. You asked them to help you build it. The more you have that dialogue, the more people are going to say, I trust you. Uh, I said it earlier and I'll say it again. Some people would rather you hear their complaints rather than solve their problems. So if you can hear their complaints and you build in what you've heard in the narrative that you're going forward with, they'll trust you. But if you just have a public hearing, you go back and then you come back the next day and say, here. And everybody says, I didn't say that. So you use their words. You use their ideas. Yeah, the other thing that you mentioned I thought was really profound right now is that you're talking about democracy now in general, not just Seattle, but you're outside all this entire country. And you made the observation that in the 1950s <laughs> that 75% of the people expected the government to do the right thing most of the time. So they had faith in the government. They knew they could screw up. But nonetheless, we trust them. Now it's reverse almost yeah. of that, and that's really hard to govern. To your point, these are difficult times. Yeah, I, and it's more complicated than that because you got to remember, I'm kind of somewhat in the 50s, <laughs> not, not totally. There's a whole different dynamic of the way communities came together and worked on issues. The more we move to the 21st century, the more people have to be engaged. They get information in ways that they never did back then. 
They can text it. They can, you know, they can access information faster than even some of you can. So communications is the essence of of your ability to move forward. You've got to talk to communities and talk to people. And, and I don't mean going out there, but finding ways to communicate them to them about what you're doing and bringing them along. The biggest thing is to ask them to help you and get them engaged in building it. And pretty soon, it may not even be what they totally wanted, but they felt that they were involved in building it. So therefore, they will own it. You also mentioned that uh, when you were mayor in the city council that you had something of a good relationship with the press. You felt that they were <laughs> hardworking. You had some side issues sometimes. But by and large, again, working with the press, you found they did a pretty good job. And that's been kind of lost today in many ways. Well, it's a little more complicated than that, but I understand what you mean. You've got to remember, when I was a reporter, we kind of moved around in packs, went to press conference. <laughs> we probably followed around two of the, the famous uh, uh reporters and just copied what they, <laughs> they, they had. This is how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, nowadays there's so many multiple outlets for getting information. Remember, uh, there used to be three big stations. Sure. You know what I mean? Maybe four radio stations and that's right. it. Yeah. But now you got podcasts, you got everything else. You're getting information in ways that you've never had before. And how to manage that is pretty difficult. You know, one of the things that I used to like to do was taking walking tours around the city. And and it wasn't just for show, showing people that you're out to listen to, them, but they value the idea that you've listened. They value the idea that you got engaged. As a mayor, you knew your obligation was to the citizens, just what you right. went through right there. And um, ignorance is the enemy of a democratic society. One of the best things I ever did, I've uh, done, I should say, was lose an election rather than win one. Because when you lose, you have to ask yourself, you don't get mad at what you lost. You ask yourself, what could you do differently? And nine times out of ten, there are a whole lot of things you could do differently. And once you do that, build that into the direction you're going into rather than be mad because you lost or anything else. Try to improve on those kinds of things. Because the more you listen... The more you're engaged, the better you're going to be as a leader. That's former Seattle mayor and executive director of the Seattle Foundation, Norm Rice. Let's not forget the Seattle Foundation as well. If you would like to get a copy of his book, Gaining Public Trust, A Profile of Civic Engagement, visit Amazon.com. You can just input Norm Rice on the Amazon search bar. Don't forget the Norman in Norm, Norman Rice. All proceeds go to the Northwest African American Museum. And who would be the target audience for this book? I'm in marketing and communications. I always kind of think that way. I always say anyone who's interested in governing a major metropolitan city, also the residents of that city, current and aspiring public servants, gaining public trust is really a blueprint on how to bring a divisive city together. Norm told me he's an optimist, meaning that we can pull this city together again. Also, Norm has lived by this British saying from the 1700s, many a man would rather you heard his story than grant his wish. That's pretty powerful. That means not only listening is critical, but making sure what the person or group said is understood. I will leave you with Norm's acknowledgments from the book. It's often said success 
has many mothers and fathers, but failure is an orphan. At the end of the day, these are the people I love and care about who are always there for me. Mama Powell, Constance Rice, Bob Watt, and Joe and Jeannie Akamoto. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Christopher Markey has joined us. Christopher wrote a book, Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism. I first asked Christopher for a quick history of B Corps. A B Corporation is a business that has been certified for its social and environmental performance by a third-party independent nonprofit called B Lab. Uh, So, you know, you may think of certifications like, you know, Fair Trade or Organic, a lot of certifications about different products or processes, but the B Corp is the only one that is about um, uh, the whole the whole company in general. And when did this all get started? You know, we've been hearing it now for a while, but when did this have its origins? B Lab, which started this, was founded in 2006, uh, so close to 15 years. And why is this important to you? I've been studying, you know, businesses' impact on society for a long time. I think that we need to really transition to a more stakeholder-oriented system. You know, currently we're in more shareholder-oriented, where it's, you know, primary, we give profits to shareholders. Uh, and I think the B Corp system provides a really rigorous and accountable way for companies to actually do that. And let's say you're a B Corporation, what does it take to become one? What are the criteria? So there's five different sections on the assessment. There's uh, workers, customers, community, environment, and governance that the company has to go through and fill out everything from, you know, things like carbon emissions, gender composition of the board and leadership, um, you know, different types of policies related to that sort of maternity or paternity leave. So uh, you wrote a book called Better Business, and it basically tells the story of some of these B corporations which are committing to the criteria you just uh, outlined. Can you give us an example of right. some companies that are B corporations and have been there for a while or some that have just joined recently? Sure thing. So, you know, so, so there's a number of them that, you know, probably would not be that surprising to your listeners. You know, Patagonia, Ben & Jerry, Seventh Generation, you know, these companies that are sort of famous for their social and environmental impact. You know, some of the ones that might be more surprising, Kickstarter, uh, Athleta, which is a, you know, yoga-focused athletic wear uh, brand. How many companies are a part of it now? Certified B corporations, there's about 3,500. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the tools and processes are actually much more applicable beyond just B corporations. So, you know, over 100,000 companies are in some ways using the tools uh, that B-Lab has created in order to you know, be more stakeholder-driven inside their company. And a lot of investors actually use it as well to screen their, their companies. Can you give me an example, let's say, how a, a B corporation has really gone out there, stretched themselves, and have done 
some things that they come back to and say, you know, not only is this more profitable for us because we're doing the right thing, you know, it's good for the country, but it's actually working in that direction as well. I mean, I guess my point is that, let's say environmentally, I don't think I'm, you know, I'm on the West Coast now. We've had a lot of fires out right. here. I mean, in Seattle, we were under smoke for five days. I mean, right. it just cleared up and, and we've seen this happening regularly. So my thing and what I always think is that if the planet is on decline and, and this is all happening, that's going to hurt everybody. And if you just want to look at your bottom line, it's going to hurt your bottom line as well. If you see what I'm driving at. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think that really stems from this you know, issue of shareholder primacy that I mentioned or sort of investor primacy. You know, it's been so um, you know, inculcated in our culture, in our laws, that really investors should be the f- first priority. And, you know, we have things like quarterly earnings and company and CEOs with stock options where, you know, their priorities are just very closely aligned on the stock market. And so, you know, these broader concerns, more long-term concerns, there's trade-offs that, that, that companies make. And they take shortcuts on the environment. They shirk on employee benefits. And this has, you know, created a big problem in the, in the U.S. If you look at just things like, you know, income inequality, since this movement of shareholder primacy started, it's gone from, you know, the CEO to average paid worker went from 20 to 1 to like 400 to 1 in the past uh, 30 years is one sort of indication of that. And so, you know, you have um, many leading investors and many leading companies now saying sort of enough is enough. And, you know, one example is Larry Fink, the founder of BlackRock, which is one of the largest investors in the world, has been writing these annual letters to CEOs of companies that he invests in and says, you need to be thinking about the stakeholders, not the quarterly profit. And the reason why is that, you know, it makes for a much more, all companies can do better in, 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 towards their stakeholders. And this B Corp model provides a really useful set of tools and models for any company to actually sort of learn and, you know, be able to offer better employee benefits, you know, better environmental programs. My thanks to Christopher Markey. His book is called Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism, and it is available on Amazon. I want to thank former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice. He has just completed a book called Gaining Public Trust, a Profile of Civic Engagement. The book is available on Amazon. On the Amazon search bar, input Norman Rice. Don't forget to add man to Norm, Norman Rice. Now for some good news about Seattle. It has one of the lowest COVID rates for any major city in the entire country. Keep up the great work, Seattle. I could do my obligatory register and vote in this election But I'm afraid if you don't feel it is vital that you participate, there is nothing that I can say that will get you to mail in your ballot. But if you're so inclined, it's postage free. If you would like to listen to part one of my interview with Norm or any other previous Voices of Experience show, Google KKNW, then click on to podcast. The page will pop up with all of the shows that air on KKNW. Go to the very bottom of the page and then click on to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Call me at 206-459-5536 if you would like to connect for any reason. That's 206-459-5536.
5536. Have a great rest of the week.